I'm wondering if you're willing to tell one story about those three years, because it's not like those three years were up and to the right. I mean, you had one moment where you were wondering if you're going to be able to make payroll, as I understood it. That's true. Well, there was one particular moment of, besides making payroll. We were $490,000 short, and we had to find $500,000 around the place in a week and a half. That was a little stressful. But I remember going to one game and and everybody wanted me to fire Doc Rivers, the coach, and Danny Ainge, the general manager, at the same time because the team was losing. And we were not tanking. We were just playing the kids to try to get them ready for the trade. But it wasn't one of these tank jobs. But anyway, we were not a very good team that year. And Paul Pierce got hurt to go, go through it. What's up, everyone, and welcome to The Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Really excited to welcome Wick Grossbeck today. Wick, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Bethany. Thanks, everybody. Glad to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you. And I'm really excited about a three-part life lesson that you're going to talk through with us in just a bit. But before we get there, could you just tell us about yourself? Give us a little bit of the high-level introduction to who you are. Okay. Well, <laughs> thanks. I think maybe people saw a bio or not, but I, I'm a dad and a husband and a family man and the father of a child with special needs who was born blind. More about Campbell later. He's now 30 and doing well, but it's been a long journey for Campbell. I'm the lead owner of the Celtics, but I'm in partnership with more than 20 great partners, including my my parents, my father, and another 24 or so people. And we all came together 20 years ago, and we're all still together. I'm so lucky to have my partners, and we're so lucky to be part of the Celtics. And getting control of buying my hometown team is an unbelievable thing. But I, I hesitate to say buying because it's really like a I'm taking care of something that's much bigger than myself that truly great people started and set the example. And we had the first, just in one dimension of the Celtics, the first African-American, drafted the first black player into the NBA, had the first all-black starting five and the first black head coach, Bill Russell, who was a player coach and won two championships as player coach. I didn't have anything to do with any of those things. I'm saying the Celtics legacy is so much bigger than, of course, than my little part of taking care of it. But I've been trying to take care of it for 20 years and it's, it's a labor of love. So very lucky to be here. And I think we're going to have question time. I, I can't personally, I have very good news for you all, I think, which is I can't listen to anybody speak for more than 20 minutes. I don't care who they are. And so I assume that's the same thing is true. You might even want to lower the number of minutes when you hear me talk. But the point is that I, I, I'd love to answer some questions that Bethany has. And that's great. I love the interactive side, but I also love the, the any questions you all might have. And so I really want to make this short and sweet cliche, but short and sweet. And and let's have fun with it. And let's bring some energy. I appreciate your energy. And I'll try to bring some energy too. Well, I'm going to bring some energy here, Wick. And I'm going to fill in a couple holes because like our breakliners, you are incredibly modest and you left out some enormous pieces there. And I'm just going to 
foreshadow them and we'll we'll get into more of them later but you're a guitarist and a drummer you play with a band and your ringtone is hell's bells by acdc <laughs> as i understand it you're an incredible philanthropist helping to raise 250 million dollars for mass ioneer during the time that you were on the board and you are married to an incredible woman who is an entrepreneur she has developed the best tasting tequila in the world sergio padilla this might interest you called Sincoro. and you all just hosted will and kate yes of the royal family at a Celtics game in Boston just a couple of days ago and have just been invited to Buckingham Palace. So we're going to get into all of this and more. But as we kick things off, Wick, you often tell your story, you reflect on your life and your career, and you tell that story in three chapters. And I love the way that you tell it. And so I'd love to tee that up for our community here. And could we start with just the first chapter? And, and the way that I think about this one is the headline, that's the me I want to be. Thank you, Bethany. Okay, that's great. And I hope I have like 24 chapters, but but there's three so far. I was, I guess it's when I talk to people about how I got involved with the Celtics or how I decided to do, quote unquote, do what I love. And everybody on this call, I'm sure, has had 95 people at a minimum say, do what you love in life, do what you love. But how do you figure out what that is? And so I didn't know at age 18, for sure. It actually took me until age 41 to figure out that I wanted to run the Celtics. But at age 18, I walked onto a sport in college, rowing, and I had I've never done it. I had been an athlete of sorts in high school, but not like my sister who played at Wimbledon and all that. I don't have the chops. And so, but I found rowing. It was actually, there. all right, here's the story you don't want to hear. And this is what's going to take us, I'm not going to go past 20 minutes, but I had a great high school girlfriend. She went to a college in Florida called Rollins College. I'm going to a college in New Jersey, Princeton, and I'm like, how am I going to get to Rollins College to visit Bridget? She's, I'm going to miss her. And I go to the crew meeting and they're wearing Rollins College hats because they had just come back from a winter training trip to Rollins College. And I'm like, well, free trip to Rollins, sign me up. So I started rowing for that reason. But anyway, I fell in love with the sport and it was four years of if anybody's rowed or wrestled or done cross country skiing or some of the real, more endurance sports in a way. It's the only kind of sport I can do because you have to be stubborn, basically. And, and that's probably the only attribute, but or stupid and stubborn. But I was able to be good at it because of my teammates. And I loved being in the boat, eight of us rowing. I loved it. And I loved racing. And I frankly, I loved beating people and taking the shirt off their back at the finish line. And they have to row back to the boathouse shirtless while you've got their, you've got a trophy. So that that was the me looking back on it. Like I had maybe two or three gears coming out of college. And I, I think I found like a fourth, fifth and, and really a sixth gear that I was able to do more than I ever thought I, I could do. And it was in a team setting and it was in a competition setting and it was in a challenging setting. And I actually mentally quit crew probably once a month. And I made note of it at the time. I like, remember Wick, while you, when you go, I don't, for myself in third person, but remember, you idiot, when you're going forward, you wanted to quit the sport. Don't brag about it so much. You're half quitting every week, every month, because it's too hard for you. And so it wasn't like a natural at it. I had to stay with it. But so after the four years, we actually won the nationals in my senior year. We were undefeated. I'll never forget it. And so then fast forward 20 years later, I Campbell had been born. My son, he had had a number of problems and challenges. It was distressing for him, for all of us. 
20 years sort of go by, but Campbell is then doing much better and is tracking well in school and is happier and doing better. And I was able to suddenly think, finally think after 20 years, basically age 41, what I want to do. And I thought back to, I looked up at a picture, I actually still have it right here, a picture of us holding oars from way back when. And I'm like, you know what? That's what I want to do. I'm sitting here writing checks in an investment company. I don't want to do that. I'm doing it, but is it what I love? No. What I want to do is go back and compete for a championship again. And it may sound like boys with their toys. It, whatever it sounds like, it's okay. You can react however you want. I mean, I accept it, but it's what I wanted to do and it's what I love. And now I'm, so I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to buy a Boston sports team. It's my hometown and I want to go compete for a world championship. And I just went, the minute I said it to myself, I'm like, well, that's what I want to do. And so not everybody's going to go off and, you know, buy a sports team or anything. And I couldn't afford one now. They've, they've gone crazy. But I, my point is, I found an extra gear, like sixth gear. And I also am a drummer and, and I, I sort of have a little bit of that gear. I'm not that great drummer, but I love it to that degree. I love music to that degree. And so you all have these things, I presume, or you will find them as you go forward that are just like breathing or like you're like you're going 80 and you feel like you're only going 20, but you're actually flying. So that's my, it's very clumsy way I'm saying it. I'm not saying it very articulately, but that's the me I want to be means I want to be back in the boat or I want to be competing for a championship. And it led to the Celtics. Then so once I got to the Celtics, we help a thousand charities a year here. It's off the court is almost more important than on the court. I didn't really realize that at the time. So there are more things to it, but my initial dive into the Celtics idea was based on college and based on what I wanted to do. It took me 20 years to figure it out. Can you show us the picture that you looked up at yeah, on your I, wall? I think it's right here. Yeah, here it is. There we go. It was a good view of my... It's pretty faded, but there we were. There you were. Yeah. yeah. You know, Amazing. Ago. Amazing. Yeah. And I think it's so important. And all of us have those touchstones when you're able to remind yourself of what you're capable of. And that's what you did in that moment as a 41-year-old saying, yeah. that's the me I want to be, that guy who was winning national championships, that guy who had the grit, the tenacity, the humility, and could go after a big, big dream. And your second chapter is about winning and continuing to win at that elite level. And so could you talk to us about that second chapter? What happened after you bought the Celtics? Well, I learned from a professor at Stanford Business School, actually not my dad who teaches there to this day at age 88. So he found what he loves to do, right? As you well know, Bethany, but he is, uh, you know, he's still teaching, you know, he's going to yes. be 90 years old, hopefully, yes. and, and winning the teaching prize. But but That's there was another, right. another professor over there, Jim Collins, who told me and us in a class, set a big aggressive goal and then figure out what it will take to accomplish it and then get it done without wavering, you know, don't quit. And so I have to give him credit. But so I tried to apply. I didn't know how to run the Celtics and I didn't know how to win the championship. And actually, when I became the CEO and governor of the Celtics, I never had an employee at age 41. I had one assistant, Wendy Cooper. She's still with me. But it doesn't count as an employee because she doesn't listen to me and she never has. So it's really more like I work for her. And she's still, she's right outside the door right now. But I hope she didn't hear me. So I was suddenly the CEO of 160 people and I never even had an employee. So I didn't know what to do. And I certainly didn't know. I'd been a fan of all four sports in Boston. I was not a basketball guy. I played basketball, but I was on the bench. I don't have a basketball mind. I can't tell you whom to draft or what plays to run. So the first step, I guess, really is to figure out what you don't know and remember it and don't pretend that you do know it. And so I'm trying to live that every day around here. I've got 
Brad Stevens running basketball. I've got and Joe Missoula coaching. And, you know, I'm not doing either of those jobs and I never will. And I, I can't. But anyway, the way we looked at the problem of winning a championship in my first press conference, December 31st, 2002, after a game, I became the owner during the game. That's when the deal closed. After the game, there's the whole Boston press. I'd never done a press conference. And they said, we noticed that you named your company that acquired the Celtics Banner 17 LLC, but there are only 16 banners. What are you saying? And I'm like, I didn't know they were going to read the paperwork and figure out the, like the name. It's not, it's hidden in the documents, but of course, being the press, they found it. And I said, well, I've got to answer all the Boston fans that are watching this or are going to read about this press conference. This is my first words as a Celtics owner. I'm not going to start with a lie. So I said, well, banner 17, it means it's self-explanatory. 17 banners. And they say, no, why don't you explain it for everybody? Are you guaranteeing a championship to the fans of the Celtics? We haven't won since 1986. Are you guaranteeing a championship? And I thought, so one thing you never do is guarantee a championship, you know? But I said, well, here I go. I said, we're going to win banner 17 or I am going to die trying. So I guaranteed it with my life. And so therefore I had to figure out how to do it. So remembering back to Bill, uh, Jim Collins, who said, you know, if you want to climb, he's a climber. If you want to climb Mount Everest, what do you do? You find out you have to climb like 20 high mountains over a space of four or five years to get up to speed. And then maybe you can try to climb Everest, but you can't go just go do it. So I'm thinking, well, what's the equivalent for winning a championship? So we hired PhDs from MIT to, in their part-time, in the spare time, look at the last 25 championships in the NBA that had been won over the previous 25 years and do the stats, do the regressions, figure out statistically, like Moneyball, this was when Moneyball is just getting started, maybe about the same time, but figure out what it took statistically to put that, what did the teams look like that won? Because it's not random, presumably. What are the trends? And so we looked at the data and for the last 25 years, we found a pattern that fit 24 of the 25 champions. So you're not gonna go with a pattern that fits one out of 25. You're gonna go with a pattern that fits 24 out of 25. And it turns out it's a big three concept. So those of you who are sports fans, Wearing your name is Charles wearing the Celtics jersey. Thank you. What number is it, Charles? Who is it? Oh, KG. He's literally, I've got an even better picture on the wall of KG. Maybe we'll show that later. But my favorite of all time. So we looked at the 24 and it's the big three concepts. So there was a big three of the Celtics back in the day, Bird, McHale, and Parrish, but there hadn't been known big threes so much ever since. If you're a basketball fan, you'll sort of know, no, there was the the Kobe years or the Shaq years, there was the Olajuwon years, the Michael Jordan six championships. You don't think of Michael Jordan as a big three. You think of Michael Jordan as the greatest of all time. And he's my partner in Sincoro Tequila, by the way, which we will get back to. But he's co-founder. But when you look at the 24 teams, they had three all-stars at once. And basketball fans here will say, no, they didn't. They, they didn't all have three all-stars at once. But what they did have is one supporting all-star who had an all-star appearance within a year or two either side of the championship year, a second supporting all-star who had an all-star appearance within a year or two either side. So in the region, all-star quality player, those two are sort of hidden. And then the third one had to be a very special player, had to be a league MVP, top 50 all-time player. So that's where you put the Kobe, Olajuwon, Jordan, Tim Duncan, that's where you put them. But who knew necessarily that every one of those MVPs had two all-star quality players? It didn't have to be three, but it couldn't be just one. And so 24, so we're like, all right, we need a big three. And then we looked at what we had. So my point is, figure out what it's really going to take. If you have to climb 20 mountains, don't climb 15 mountains. Don't climb six mountains. 
Don't just go run the Boston Marathon tomorrow like people do, and then they, they break down. Get ready. So then we actually did it. And there's a whole long story about how we got there. But Danny Ainge, thank goodness for Danny Ainge, who's brilliant and a genius beyond being brilliant. He's a genius at like figuring things out, street smart. He looked ahead four years. We had one all-star, Paul Pierce, not a top 50 player. Although these days he's considered top 100. He's not never been a league MVP and he's never going to be top 50. So, but we had Paul Pierce, who was young at the time. Paul Pierce was barely an all-star at the time. We need another all-star, and then we need to get one of the all-time greats. How do you do that? Danny said, three years from now, Kevin Garnett is coming up in Minnesota. His contract's coming up. He just signed an extension. It's a huge number. Minnesota's kind of a small market. If he doesn't win in Minnesota, they're not going to be able to probably afford to keep him. They're probably going to want to rebuild. He's going to be over 30. Probably a good time for them to rebuild and trade him to us if we build up enough pieces. So we spent three solid years building up pieces, not meaning to refer to human beings as pieces, but when you think about a team, you think about role players. So building up enough players and assets like draft assets to be able to trade. And we did end up trading Al Jefferson, a very good young player, and six other either players or draft picks. So a seven for one trade, the first one in the history of the NBA for KG, three years after Danny proposed the trade to us. So we waited three years for KG as we built up Rondo and Tony Allen and Al Jefferson and all the pieces so we could trade some and still have enough left so that we could bring in KG, brought in Ray Allen, who was an all-star, and brought in Paul. And we, we went from next to worst record in the league in 2007 to 66 and 16. And then we won the championship. We beat Kobe by 39 points and won the championship here in, in the garden, which is right below this office. And my license plate to this day is Celtics 39 because 39 point victory. So that's that's a little, you keep saying I'm humble. I don't sound like very humble when I listen to myself. But anyway, my message, I had to learn it on the fly. So I'm not trying to give you a lecture like I figured it all out. I had to, under pressure, try to figure something out. Someone else gave it to me. But the part not to skimp on, I think, is figuring out really what it takes, what it's going to take. If you say, look, I want to be the entrepreneur of a successful startup, figure out from the people who've done it what it takes and go through the steps. So I tried to figure out the championship steps and then we tried to, and we took three painful years of following them. So I just, I'm sort of saying, don't say to myself, and if you choose to listen in, don't shortcut stuff. I mean, it's such an epic tale. And I'm glad that you're not shortchanging us on, on some of the details there. And what I find so interesting about it too, is like three years. One of the things that I worry about is our lack of attention span or our ability to commit and to commit for the long term. You had to commit for three years in order to see this vision through. I'm wondering if you're willing to tell one story about those three years, because it's not like those three years were up and to the right. I mean, you had one moment where you were wondering if you're going to be able to make payroll, as I understood it. That's true. Well, there was one particular moment of, besides making payroll. We were $490,000 short, and we had to find $500,000 around the place in a week and a half. That was a little stressful. But I remember going to one game, and, and everybody wanted me to fire Doc Rivers, the coach, and Danny Ainge, the general manager, at the same time, because the team was losing. And we were not tanking. We were just playing the kids to try to get them ready for the trade. But it wasn't one of these tank jobs. But anyway, we were not a very good team that year, and Paul Pierce got hurt to go, to go through it. So fired. Some kid was sitting behind our bench. I got there really early to watch warm-ups. And this kid got in, and it's an hour before the game, and he's half, practically alone. 
and he's holding a sign that says fire doc fire danny it's gonna be right on tv behind the bench and so i went over to him he was probably 16 years old and i said friendly way not threatening i said so you want me to fire doc and danny i'm the guy that would do it he goes yeah you gotta fire him and i said i'll tell you what i'm gonna do if you hold that sign up i'm going to find out who saved you these seats and i'm going to cancel their seats but you're welcome to hold the sign up so it wasn't very friendly after all. That was like a horrible thing because I didn't want like people wearing bags over their heads. We just had to get through the process. But it's very it's easier to quit most of the time, like rowing, and it's easier to quit than to keep going. It doesn't mean you're always on the right track and you shouldn't change, right? But there are times when you just have to say there are a lot of teams in the NBA who every year put a band-aid on their team and think, well, maybe this is the year we're gonna go with a bunch of pretty good guys and good pretty good team, but they don't have the big three concept that was at least relevant in 2008. It's different now. I, I don't know what the math would show about, about championships now. It would show Steph Curry, but and three point shooting, it's, it's probably all totally changed. Wick, I wanted to just point out something that, that you said, you equated your experience with rowing with the tenacity that you needed to like stick through these three years to get to the national championship. And I want to make the point for breaklanders because one of our central tenets at breakline is excellence is transferable right and so like that tenacity that grit that wick learned when he was trying not to quit from rowing and ultimately got all the way through that national championship he took all that wiring with him when he bought the celtics That's billy lister yeah please well, sorry can i make a caveat i've been super lucky and it's wrong for me to sit here and show off the trophy and all that stuff without seeing it up front. So it's not just being lucky, born to a family that had the means where I could go off to a good college and row instead of working two jobs. And, you know, there's lots of advantages. And it's not lightly that I say how lucky I've been. And then to have my partners be with me for 20 years and be in roles where they don't have a vote, because the rule in the NBA is one person has a vote. And to have these amazing people be with me for 20 years and and we're all still here a thousand wins later. We've had a thousand wins now and mm. it's, and we've had probably 850 losses. So I should be humble if I've lost 850 times, but at least they're not all in a row. But anyway, I've been very lucky and, and I didn't know how the Celtics would go. I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know how the team valuation, we didn't do it for the money anyway, but I didn't know how the team valuations would go. So the whole thing is a story of luck. So it's not just grit. It's also being very fortunate. Mm, true. And thank you for, for adding that to the conversation. And I was just calling out Billy Lister as our Paralympian who's here today because he knows all about, just like you, Wick, all about that grit and tenacity that it takes to get across the finish line of a national championship. Wow. So I mentioned that you've got three chapters. You told us about the first two. You're still living the third chapter. <laughs> And this one you describe as, as being about the next two banners that you'd like to win. Yeah. So what do you think the next two banners or trophies, but the next two banners in the rafters, what, what do you think those are likely to be? Maybe they're banner 18 and 19 at the Celtics. I would certainly love to do that. But I was the chairman of Mass Signer for 11 years. My son is totally blind from birth, no light perception. Mass Signer was started in 1821. And its motto is so that the deaf may hear and the blind may see. There's no place in the world that has more researchers on deafness and blindness. And arguably, there's no place in the world that has a better research program or an effort than mass engineer, although we would welcome 100 more because there is a need for 100 more mass engineers. In fact, these standalone pioneer hospitals are a thing of the past. Now we've merged in with Mass General and Harvard Medical School. We were already 
Harvard, but we were in with the Brigham and Women's and Mass General into a bigger hospital system, but we stayed fiercely independent with our own board and our own endowment and our own budget. Nobody is doing more than mass high to fight blindness and deafness, and it needs to be done. And it's not just in the United States, it's in it's overseas, it's in India and Africa and Asia and everywhere else. And so, yes, we raised $252 million in a capital campaign, but the next two banners I want to put up are, we beat blindness and we beat deafness. And I would trade everything to be able to do that. For me, I'd like to say, and I'm trying to inspire myself, but in a way, if it reverberates onto you guys at all, like hitting a drum, then that's great. But I'm not, I'm not doing any teaching tonight. I'm just doing some observing, I guess, or thinking, trying to think. It's like we're here for only a finite amount of time. And so we should put banners up and we can, everybody on this call probably has done it, but definitely can do it. And the efforts you're doing at Breakline making for yourself and for others are indicative of that. We all have the tools and the chops to make the world a better place. So when I think of a banner, I might ask you guys, if you feel like thinking about it, what banner you want to put up. It might be, I was a great dad or mom. It might be, I did something about hunger in my community or, or special needs in my community. Or you had a broader goal of helping with cancer research or helping with poverty or, or people who are less fortunate. So all those things you're probably all already doing. But think of it as a banner. And what's the banner when you're 80, when you're 90? What banner do you want to have in the rafters? that you hung. So that's the way I like to think of it. And by the way, when you hang that banner, let me know, I'll come at celebration. That's beautiful, Wick. One of the things that I find so inspiring about you, and I'm sorry to use that word because I know that, I know how humble you are and I don't mean to embarrass you, but it's <laughs> I completely think I've been humble true. Today. I think everybody's <laughs> gonna disagree with the humble part, but thank well, you. Well, only, you've only told us the facts and the facts are pretty spectacular. But I notice your incredible commitment to various pursuits in your life. Like the commitment to Mass Ioneer was incredible. You had a similar commitment to Campbell's School, the Perkins School for the Blind in Boston. You've had a similar commitment to the Celtics. And then you also have these long running pursuits that matter to you. I mentioned that you're a musician. You just sold a sitcom. Like who does that? Yeah, and NBC, NBC's kind of <laughs> picking up our show. We've got 13 episodes coming on primetime next fall, and we've only made one so far. So we have a little work to do. <laughs> so there's some there's some work to do. It's just like I look at you and I see someone who's lived a very full life and a really interesting life. You're and saying, you, You're saying I look old. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm 61. <laughs> and I'm thinking like it, we're seeing your office at the Celtics and you could have your guitar in there. You could have your sitcom in there. You could have Mass Ioneer banners in there. Like there's so much fullness in your life. Can you talk to us about that? Because I've I've seen more often than the example that you you represent, I've seen people who are, have maybe a singular focus and go really deep in one thing. And what I one thing I think is so interesting about you is that you've gone deep and broad in a variety of things. And I'd love to just hear your reflections on that. Gosh, Bethany, I don't know what to say about that. Thank you. I'm following my I would almost say boyish, but that sounds very out of touch and gender specific and really inappropriate. So let me not say that, but let me say youthful enthusiasms. And I'm still pretending to be young and I'm definitely still enthusiastic. So I played drums since I was five or six or something. And then I've taken up guitar because it's actually more fun to, it's, to be up on stage. I mean, we closed a show. We went on after Lenny Kravitz two years ago, and he was a little annoyed that somebody went on after him, but he's a very nice guy. 
but he's the mo- one of the most talented musicians in the world. We did not belong on the stage, but but we play in Boston. We play at charity shows. We're opening for Heart in February 4th at the House of Blues. I'm like, we're on stage with some of the greatest musicians, John Legend, whatever, Florida. We've had a lot of fun. But I just do the stuff that is, I mean, life is supposed to be fun, but you're also supposed to help other people. And, and it's what you do. And so I, I, I try to have fun and also do some good things. It's just really embarrassing because it's just childish stuff. It's not embarrassing. I mean, it is, it's so fantastic. It's hard to pull these pearls out from you, but I'm intending to do it, Wick. And so you all, we might have a little bit of a back and forth here as we peel back the layers. Before we completely leave the the chapter on, on the Celtics, you just hosted Will and Kate, and I don't even know what to call them. Is it their royal highness <laughs> well like, we we were briefed, sure, but, we were the yeah. greeter when they came into the arena in the in the back entry the, the players entrance you know we were the two amelia and i my wife amelia who's um, unbelievable like i'm the picture frame and she's the picture she's just totally unbelievable <laughs> but we're supposed to say your royal highness and like i'm supposed to like nod my head and amelia could like maybe one inch curtsy but but they but they said if anybody feels uncomfortable you don't need to do that stuff and so we're just trying to figure out what to do. And all of a sudden they appear and William just sticks out his hand, says, I'm, I'm William and I'm Kate. And they couldn't have been more, I mean, the Royal family concept is a strange concept. Our coach, Joe Mazzula, who's this 34 year old, like killer, he's the greatest guy, but he's like the only Royal, the press asked him, what'd you think of having the Royal family there? And he said, the only Royal family I know is Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Okay. So he didn't really have anything to do with the British Royal family, but these are two very nice people who spent the whole night trying to make us feel comfortable and chatting away with Amelia. And if anybody saw any of the clips, and you may not have, but Amelia is the one in the white jacket sitting next to Kate the whole night. And now people are recognizing her on the street because that sort of went global, which is kind of funny. Wait, wait, can you show us the picture on your phone? I did show you that in the warm-up, didn't I? Here's one of the many, but there's, I don't know if you can see, but that's Amelia chatting with Kate. Oh, there we go, like that. Yeah, so anyway. What? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. They're they're friends now. (laughs) I said, Amelia, and Amelia is the founder and CEO of Sincoro Tequila, but she's the CEO. And I said, Amelia, you have a 20 mention limit on Sincoro. Okay. You cannot pester the royals for more than 20 times about your tequila, which we gave them in great bottles of the tequila. I mean, she was hoping they would take a sip in in front of the cameras, which they wouldn't do. But she said, well, I blew through the 20 (laughs) number. Like, so she spent uh, like an hour telling him about her tequila, but we, but anyway, we really made friends with, they're nice people that you may not agree with the Royal family concept. I think it's an unusual concept, but I think you would agree if you met them, they're very nice people. Thank you for sharing that anecdote, Wick. My last question, Wick, and this is somewhat obvious in your commentary, but it's around friendships. You, you talked about being an athlete yourself or crew in college, won the national championships. You still get out and row on the Charles river with some of your teammates. You've forged incredible friendships through that experience. You've talked about your partners being with you over the last 20 years through 850 losses and a thousand wins. Can you talk to us a little bit about the role of friendship in your life? I love it. I love, I don't mind being alone and, you know, reading a book or whatever, but I mean, I read all the time, but I, I just cherish relationships. I think they make the world go round and my marriage and my family and friends echoing out from there. I don't know. I only have very obvious things to say, but they make life worth living for me. So it's a great thing. Thank you so much, Wick. Okay. We're going to get into some of the questions coming in from 
the brake liners. And I want to just add one anonymous comment, which is Wick is so cool. And I wish I lived in Boston so I could be best friends with him and his wife. Oh, that's very <laughs> nice. Well, thank you. Was that William or Kate? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and so first question for you is from Maggie. And she says, what was the challenge like of rebuilding the Celtics roster after the end of the 2008 championship roster? We haven't won again, Maggie, although we're, we were favored. We were leading the finals last year, but then we lost to the Warriors, sadly. Our challenge, it was hard. We hung on as long as we could with that team. We had a really good team in 2009. We started 27 wins and two losses in 2009. So that team was actually on paper probably better than the 2008 team. Then we had a couple of injuries and we lost the season. 2010, we made it to the finals. We were leading the finals three games to two. And then our center got hurt. These are not excuses. They're just facts. Maybe they're excuses that are facts. But then Perk got hurt, our center, and we lost. In addition, we lost two games to the Lakers, game three, uh, game six and game seven, I guess it was. But so we had three really good years. Fourth and fifth year, the guys were probably a little bit past it. And we ended up trading with Kevin and Paul's permission and buy-in. We traded them to Brooklyn and Brooklyn was going to be a really good team. And we got a bunch, we got three draft picks back and those picks turned into Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. So it took eight or nine or 10 years to really rebuild from the 2008 period of time. But now Jason and Jalen have been here five or six years and they are still, they're 24 and 25, I guess it is. And they are maybe the best pair in the league and we are leading the league right now so it has taken us a while it didn't happen in a minute but it did we've made some progress but until we win another one i'm gonna have to content myself with blindness and deafness all right next question from eric who says how did you align the organization to focus several years down the line with significant public pressure to constantly compete for a championship that one this answer is not going to sound that great but i know we're recording it so i'll say it carefully but I'm the person that needs to decide that and everybody else needs to, I'm a team player and I get advice. But when I decided to do it that way, if someone really had a problem with it, they would have to leave. I mean, we're seeing, but if I, we're seeing but part if I, of that steely side. Well, but if I'm telling the coach, you're okay. Actually, we hired in Doc Rivers to do this. And he said, I see what's happening. We're going to have some tough years. He said, I will coach the kids and take the losses take the lumps and coaches do not like having any losses on their resume. It's like having a bad grade in school. And I've had some of those, but coaches don't like losses. And Doc said, I'll coach the kids and I'll wait around for KG. And we don't even know if KG will even happen, but you got to promise me you'll let me coach the championship team. I said, it's mm -hmm. a deal. So that's how I managed it with our coach. Mm -hmm. Billy Lister, I see you with your hand up. Yeah, Bethany, thank you so much. I wanted to raise my hand to show that I'm also one of the New Yorkers that raised his hand as a lifetime fan of, of the Knickerbockers, but also want to just, you know, very politely point out that I think our garden is, is the one garden that's known as the Mecca. And I wanted to ask a question to that end is, how do you, as the lead owner of the Celtics, how do you also balance like the change in, in fan consumption of the game and, and how like the whole city rallies around the team? That you're providing the entertainment for and so how do you how do you see the future of consumption you know within sports and you know within the nba transforming and changing yeah well one quick thing about the knicks i mean i love the garden and uh, you know it's nice and airy up there because there aren't quite so many banners cluttering up the ceiling <laughs> touche um, wick touche. Yeah, okay sorry man well i think consumption if you mean you know more digital consumption and the and the league going global that's maybe one way to think about consumption another way to think of it 
is maybe also what you were alluding to, which is, you know, people, when I came in, they said, won't the burden of 16 championships and all the greats going before you, Bill Russell and Larry Bird and Red Auerbach, won't that be kind of a crushing burden? How do you handle that? And I'm sort of like, well, I view it as an opportunity to, it's a responsibility and I'll take it on, but what if we can add to it or take care of it? I'd be proud of that. I know that I didn't create the place and I didn't build it into greatness, but what if we could keep it going a little bit? So I viewed it not as a crushing burden, but as an opportunity. It wasn't like I'm grabbing an opportunity, but it was like a thrill and an honor. So to be this trustee. So, but the global and digital consumption, which is a totally different way of thinking of consumption, I guess, is magnifying everything. Our guys now go global. This used to be a very local sport. If you could drive to the game, maybe 30 miles, the TV signal was probably 50 miles. There were some national games, they were on tape, like the finals used to be on tape at 11 p.m., I'm told, back in the 60s. So it was kind of nowhere. And now it's with soccer, probably the two global sports. It's just amazing what's happened to it. Mm. And Wick, you mentioned to me that something like you just can't put a price on how much people love the sport, how much the fans love the sport, the energy, the the excitement. And the fun thing about Boston and other cities, but the fun thing about Boston is that all four teams get along. We go on vacations with John Henry and his wife, Linda, literally, we've gone on four different vacations with them. We hang out with Robert Kraft and his son, Jonathan, who's amazing. And I'm going about to go to Charlie Jacobs' wedding in the first, in the second week of January over in Switzerland, the Bruins owner, a local Bruins owner. So, I mean, we are just friends. And it, by the way, if any Boston team, this is just Boston being annoying again, but if any Boston team wins like two games, three games, you can sell out the rest of your season. Like we're all sold out here. So we don't need to compete for fans or sponsors, really. We just can be friends, which is a nice way to be. I love that. Charles Henderson, I see you with your hand up and I appreciate you repping the Celtics today. Hi, uh, Charles Henderson here. I'll be quick. Air Force vet. First, I want to say that you're being very inspirational. So there's no question about that. I know you're inspiring me. You got me thinking about what I want to do in my life and in my career, which I think is very appropriate for here. Uh, I work for the VA in developing and, and adoption of apps. And so we are, your discussion about analytics and research helping you to develop a strategy to win that championship is very applicable. And I wrote this in the chat, I think to any career field that really hit home with me because this is a tough market that 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 I'm in. Um, I'm a veteran, like I said, that's my passion. That is my banner. If I can create and help to develop apps that will help veterans with healthcare, that is going to be amazing for me and in a life victory. So I really want to hear if you have any more tidbits about how it was strategizing and putting that together. I would love to hear more if you can. Well, I don't know. I mean, we started the tequila from scratch. I haven't started other stuff from scratch, but my I am a venture capitalist. Also, I've got a venture fund with two really good friends and, and we've been running that for about 10 or 12 years. And it's Great. So, I mean, I've worked with entrepreneurs for a long time and tried to learn from them. If this responds to you, I, I think it might. I see some people, a lot of people that sort of say, I have an idea, and then they convince people to like it. Another way to do it is to say, what do the people want and need? And take that extra month, not not three meetings, and I'm, and I'm sure you're doing this. I'm just sort of speaking out loud to everybody or speaking off the top of my head, but, but talk to 100 customers not 10 or not two. You know, it's easier when I have an idea, I don't want to talk to anybody because I don't want anybody to talk me out of it. And that's a big fault of mine. And so if you really, if you're going to go launch an app for people need this and they're going to want it, then 
every constituency, the people who are going to react to the app, the, the service providers that are going to be called through the app or however the app is going to work, talking to a ton of those and then talking to yet another ton and then putting it together. And then maybe there's that flash where you say, I see how this works and actually make it simpler than I thought because there's one really pressing need and I don't need to do 12 things in this thing. It's possibly. I'm just hopeful. But maybe that if that's sort of what you were getting at, I mean, I, my advice is to to myself, first of all, is to listen more and bulldoze less. <laughs> no, that is, that is, that's very powerful. Uh, we have several human factors engineers that work with us that we use and we're doing, we're trying to do exactly what you said. So that's very powerful. I want to, I want to thank you again and let everybody else speak. Humbleness, I think you're the definition of humble because I think I'm living my dream and I'm very fortunate, but you're presenting yourself as a common person, just normal that I would see walking down the street, but you have achieved some thank Mount Everest size goals. Well, I think everybody in this call has achieved a lot of stuff. So I, it's the way I hear it. So thank you very much for that, Charles. Thank you, Charles. Diane has a question, Wick, and she says, thank you so much for spending time with us today. What are your thoughts on companies pivoting towards younger leadership in high visibility roles, much like the Celtics are doing with Joe Mazzula? Right. Well, as long as we don't pivot me, I'm fine with it. <laughs> There's just sometimes it's just the right person. Like we hired Brad when he was... 37 or something. He was the youngest coach at the time. And now Joe's 34. So we maybe set another record there. And we hired Joe under Battlefield. We had like a day to figure out interim. And he's an interim right now, but he he has a good chance of being promoted to permanent. But don't tell Joe if you see him. So I'm in favor. I mean, I, I came in at age 41 to run the Celtics and that's considered pretty young to be a lead owner. And I don't know if that was a record or not, but it, it felt young at the time since I'd never even had an employee, as I said. So I guess go for it. Waiting around 10 years isn't going to make you any smarter. It's going to make you dumber in my experience because I'm getting dumber the older I get. I'm going to contest that. <laughs> well, you didn't know me 10 years ago. Wick, Ryan has a question. He says, what do you think the impact will be from the recent rule change by the board of governors allowing sovereign wealth funds to buy into teams? Yep. I'm on that committee, the committee that voted on that at the executive committee. And it's a it's an important step, really, because these valuations have gotten really high by any measurement. They're way beyond what anybody expected, for sure me. I mortgaged my house back in the day just to do the deposit on the Celtics, but these days you can't mortgage a house to do a deposit on an NBA team. It's just a different thing. And so to support these valuations, I know I needed 20 plus people to come in with me just to get to the number 20 years ago, which was a lot lower than these numbers now. And so if you're trying to bring in 20 people with you now, everything's gotten magnified. And those people are basically just getting like courtside seats and or nice seats and a couple other perks, but they're not actually able to necessarily run the team. We can't support this ecosystem without having more investment capital av available to support like the purchase of a team. And so a sovereign wealth fund is really no different than someone else buying in if you put the proper restrictions on where they can't try to take the team over or manage the team. There are league rules about who's running the team, but having supporting capital can be that's patient and sovereign wealth typically is very patient. You know, it's 20 year, 30 year capital can be helpful in a team. That was our thinking. Thank you, Wick. Eric, I thought I saw your hand up. Do you have a question? I did just have a quick question. I'm like slightly fanning out here. I grew up in North Shore, Massachusetts. I graduated high school in 2011. So I'm pretty young but that was like the pinnacle period to be in boston where like every yeah. sports team is winning a yeah, exactly 
I just really enjoyed it. So my question for you, less about the business side. I know you said you're all friends, but do you have any friendly wagers with the other heads of the other Boston sports teams throughout the season? Well, we should. I mean, we just have so many like looks we share with each other, bragging rights, whatever you want to call it. But we're not actually betting, but I wouldn't be averse to it. I do have a little bet with my Sincoro founders. The Sincoro tequila just I'm not gonna I'm not selling it. I'm not Amelia, but Amelia and I have three partners. One is Jeannie Buss, who owns the Lakers. One is Wes Edens, who owns the Bucks, and one is Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time, who owns the Charlotte Hornets. And so the five of us started this, and it's a five-sided bottle, five founders, the whole thing. So it's, but we now, we just instituted this year a thing called the Sincoro Cup, and we're going to like promote it a little bit on DraftKings, but it's when the Hornets play the Celtics, Hornets play the Lakers, Bucks play the Lakers, Bucks play the Celtics, keep track of the games among the four teams, and whoever wins it at the end gets to have the cup and it's going to be a bitter blow to Michael Jordan if he doesn't get it. And let me tell you, he doesn't look like he is going to get it. And he's going to be quite annoyed. And I hope he doesn't watch this video, but I'm going to see him tomorrow. So anyway, I'll tell him I, I'll confess. But so we, we're we having a friendly wager among ourselves and we're publicizing it on, I think, on DraftKings. For too that's, long. that's awesome. And that must be a very difficult battle between the Bucks and the Celts whenever that happens. Yeah, it went <laughs> seven games in the playoffs, but luckily the good guys won. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. I'll look forward Wait. to seeing you at a game because you're from here. I know you'll be back here. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm coming back for the winter seasons. Hopefully there's some open seats during those games. There will be. We've got multiple Bostonians here chomping at Good. the bit. Good. Wait, we've got three minutes. So I wanted to do a lightning round. Maggie's asking, what's it like to work with Michael Jordan? You gave us a, just most, a snippet there. He is the most generous, thoughtful. He's the best partner you can imagine. He is a champion for so many reasons but I've now known him for 15 years or something, but I've, we've worked together as co-founders for five years. And he is, he's all in on Amelia and the concept of Amelia being the CEO and we all do everything and she's killing it. But anyway, he's a great partner. He is humble. He is a champion. He is, he does everything the best way it can possibly be done. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't find a nicer person. He's really hmm. amazing. Hmm. Last question from me, Wick, is as we round out the hour, one thing that I've observed about you that I appreciate so much is how you show up for other people. And I want to give a couple of examples. You talked about showing up as chair of the board at Mass Ioneer, raising $250 million. I can't even conceive of that kind of capital campaign. Well, we should thank the people who gave it. I mean, we yes. gave a little bit, but... Yeah, but well, okay. Thank you, but but let's not discount your role in that. You've talked so sweetly about your wife, Amelia, how you're the picture frame and she's the picture. You've talked poignantly about your son, Campbell. And I'm just thinking about for all of us here, as we think about ourselves as allies for one another, thoughts, lessons learned that you've come across on the way about how to show up as a really strong ally and as a really strong friend to others. I've never thought about that question. It just feels better to me inside to show up and be there than not to and to wish I was there later, I guess. So mm -hmm. I'm just following my I mean, I think a lot of what we talked about today, and thank you all. I want to thank you all for listening patiently and or impatiently, but not showing it. So thank you. I've just been following my instincts or what makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing. When it comes to the Celtics, I try to think of what the greats of the past would want us to do here. I consult with my father as well, who's my principal partner here. But in addition, we think about what Red Auerbach would have wanted us to do. You know, when we brought him back 
in the last four years of his life to come back as team president. He had been fired by the previous owners, which is shocking because he had won the previous 16 championships. So we got to work with Red and listen to Red and learn from Red. But so anyway, I'm just following my gut here. This isn't anything I learned in a book. I learned it from my family and I we all have this inside. We know what the right thing to do is, all of us. And the more we can do it, the better, I guess. Wick, what a treat to spend the last hour you, with Dr. you. It's been so warm and so enriching for all of us. Appreciate you coming and, and sharing part of your story. Thank you so much. Thank you all. I'll see you in Boston. Thanks so we'll much. We'll see you in Boston. Go break line. I'm a big Go fan. Go break line. Thank you, Wick. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.